Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Navigating a New Treatment Algorithm for Patients with Relapsed Refractory Follicular Lymphoma. Where do CD20 by CD3 by specific antibodies fit in? To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. My name is Dr. Karen Jacobson. I am a lymphoma physician at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Steve Ansel. I'm a hematologist at Mayo Clinic. I chair the division of hematology. Despite many approved therapies in frontline and the relapse setting, follicular lymphoma inevitably progresses, thus necessitating novel treatment strategies for future relapses. In our first session, let us discuss the clinical efficacy data on novel bispecific antibodies in patients with relapse and refractory follicular lymphoma, and I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Ansel now to take us through some of that data. Karen, thank you very much. A number of agents to consider. Mosinutuzumab is actually an approved agent in patients that have failed greater than two lines of systemic therapy. But we're also going to talk briefly about three other emerging antibodies that have data showing efficacy and benefit for patients. Shown here is the results for mosinutuzumab. You can see a high response rate and the median progression-free survival is quite durable, in this case, two years. If you look then at odronextamab, you see this recurring theme of an overall response rate of 80%, which was the primary endpoint, a complete response of around 70%, and the duration of response and median progression-free survival approaching two years. Then if you look at epcaritamab, similarly excellent response rate of 82% with a CR rate of 63%, and again, median progression-free survival here at around a year and a half. And finally, glofotimab, overall response rate of 81% and 70% of the patients having a complete response. So overall, I think we can say these are highly effective agents. Benefit is quite dramatic and a high percentage of patients with a complete response and quite frankly, quite durable. So Dr. Jacobson, what do you think the clinical implications of these data are? Thanks, Steve. When patients get to the third-line setting with traditionally available therapies, things like lenalidomide, third-line chemotherapy, alternative CD20 monoclonal antibodies, generally led to progression-free survivals of no more than a year, year and a half. And now we're seeing a doubling with these agents for real benefit for our patients that need a third line of therapy. A number of these patients were POD24 type patients, so clearly beneficial in very refractory patients. In this next session, we're going to discuss the safety profiles of these novel bispecific antibody therapies. So, Dr. Jacobson, maybe you'd like to take us through some of the toxicity information that we have on these agents. The biggest side effect that we are concerned about is cytokine release syndrome, which is due to activation of the T cells leading to secretion of inflammatory cytokines, which activate other immune effector cells, and you get this cytokine cascade. This risk is greatest with the first full dose of these drugs administered, but most of the cytokine release syndrome we see after bispecific antibodies is grade one or grade two. We do see a low incidence of neurologic toxicities or immune effector cell-associated neurologic syndrome. When it does happen, it is almost uniformly grade one or grade two, and it's very, very self-limited. I think some of the later side effects that we're worried about with these CD20 bispecifics are infectious side effects 
context, we have to remember that we are targeting CD20. So we are leading to B-cell aplasia. And there is sort of a functional T-cell depletion as well. These agents can cause cytopenias. I think they're less frequent than we see with CAR T-cell therapies, but is something to keep an eye on as well. I will say that these adverse events have been very manageable. Many patients can continue through their therapy without any treatment discontinuation due to CRS. Do you think there's any differences in CAR T-cell patients compared to those receiving bispecific antibodies that the structure and the penetration of those therapies into the CNS has any impact on the neurotoxicity? Or do you think that's a different mechanism, maybe cytokine mediated? So I think neurologic toxicity is both cellular and cytokine mediated, and it's somewhat dependent on the target. All of these therapies can lead to cytokine release syndrome, but the products that cross the blood-brain barrier and target CD19 over CD20 or BCMA seem to induce neurologic toxicity to the greatest extent. Do you think the continuous duration treatment versus the more time-limited duration is going to make any difference to the infection rates? I absolutely do think so. We know that prolonged immune suppression, prolonged B-cell and T-cell lymphopenia is the risk factor for having infections. So with the fixed duration therapies like mosinotuzumab or glofitimab, that's a much safer way to administer these therapies than epcaridumab or undronexumab dosing up until the time of intolerance or disease progression. That being said, I don't know that it's necessary to treat indefinitely with these therapies, and I think we could potentially apply a similar dosing structure to epcaridumab and undronexumab when they're approved. Let's talk a little bit more in detail about how we manage these side effects and keep our patients safe. I think the first is key management strategies for cytokine release syndrome. The step-up dosing has really been a primary way of managing these toxicities and pre-medication with steroids and antihistamines, antipyretic-type medications are standard of care. Hospitalization sometimes is needed as we get to the first full dose, but many times this is being managed more and more in the outpatient setting. So I think while that's a consideration, it's not always a requirement. As we move more to subcutaneous administration routes, we may actually see less in the way of toxicities. A lot of us are actually giving the patient a dose of dexamethasone to take home with them after that first full dose. If they get that fever two in the morning, they can give you a call, but we can instruct them to take that dose of dexamethasone and return to the clinic in the morning to avoid hospitalization. Epcaridumab does incorporate four days of dexamethasone dosing during the startup cycles. And glofitimab will include a pre-dose of obinutuzumab to try to decrease the B-cell load before you give even the first step-up dose. These strategies are really leading to a very manageable safety profile and one that can largely be done outpatient and in the community, which I think is really important for these drugs. Neurologic toxicity, thankfully, is very rare. And unlike neurologic toxicity with CAR T-cell therapy, generally is self-resolving, short-lived, and very mild. And so first, we have to monitor for symptoms. We have to tell patients and their caregivers what are the symptoms to look out for, things like word-finding difficulty, confusion, disorientation, tremor, and a lot of times difficulty with language in general. We can offer supportive care as needed, but we rarely need to administer any therapy for neurologic toxicities with these bispecific antibodies unless someone has higher grade toxicity, in which case, of course, we would treat with corticosteroids in the hospital until the patient improves to grade one or better. 
cytopenias obviously requires us to monitor their blood cell counts, and we can use supportive GCSF as needed for neutropenia. But if we're dealing with a rate-limiting anemia or thrombocytopenia, we would hold the drug until the counts resolve. I do PJP prophylaxis and herpes virus prophylaxis for these patients, but clearly we need to take any sort of sign or symptom of infection very seriously and treat as needed and hold therapy until the infection resolves. But in general, I think if we were to summarize things, these are highly effective agents and the side effects, including infections, but CRS and neurotoxicity, very manageable with an appropriate, as you said, prophylactic and anticipatory kind of strategy. So I think in the next session, we can talk about ways to integrate these therapies into the treatment of patients with relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma. In this session, we will talk about ways to optimally integrate these therapies into treatment talking specifically about patient selection and the crucial role of the multidisciplinary medical team in optimizing care. These are some of the characteristics of patients who may benefit from bispecific antibody therapies in patients that are relapsed and refractory with follicular lymphoma. Clearly, we have to follow the indication, and that's patients who have failed more than two lines of therapy. The clinical trials focused on patients with a very good performance status, However, I think as we look to the future and as these drugs get into common practice, as Dr. Jacobson, you mentioned, toxicities are relatively modest and you can manage them reasonably well. I anticipate that we may provide these therapies to slightly more frail patients. Patients who have been refractory to therapies versus a responder who subsequently relapses, those may have a poor response. And clearly those folks that progressed right away without really staying in remission for 24 months are people at a higher risk. However, in the trials, these patients still responded quite well. Dr. Jacobson, tell us how you utilize the multidisciplinary care in managing patients that get these therapies. I think we can adopt a lot of what we learned from CAR T-cell therapy to bispecifics, although I think logistically these are less challenging, both for the providers and for the patients. Some of the requirements of these multidisciplinary teams becomes a little bit less intense. What we need is good nursing and good nursing education for these patients. Pharmacy plays a big role in following these patients. Remember, dosing can be multiple times in a week or multiple weeks in a row for these patients. And after each visit, there is a risk of developing cytokine release syndrome. Some patients may need housing in order to be able to make those frequent trips, which requires resource specialists and our social workers to help with both transportation and housing. And because a lot of these side effects will happen at home, it's very important both from a nursing, physician, and pharmacy perspective to really educate the patient and give them the tools they need to be able to monitor and call for the right symptoms. Symptoms. Obviously, there is going to be a need for consultation, even for patients that are being treated in the community with a tertiary center. And so clearly, our multidisciplinary teams will need to manage together across the cancer care consortium. I think there's an opportunity, too, just for that multidisciplinary management to really utilize telemedicine. We learned a lot during the pandemic about that. A lot of companies are developing wearable devices to do things like monitor vital signs and temperature and things like that. And so that may change what we're able to do offsite for a lot of patients.
I think we will see consensus guidelines put forth for the management of these toxicities, which will really help community centers in familiarity and comfort with managing some of these toxicities. We mentioned most of these treatments as single agents, but in the next session, we talk about potential considerations for what the future may hold for novel biospecific antibodies, possibly in combination and then in the treatment landscape of follicular lymphoma. So love to talk a little bit about emerging clinical evidence and particularly discussions potentially about where to go next. The big sequencing question right now, do we think about doing CAR T-cell therapy first and then bispecifics second, or do we do bispecifics first and CAR T-cell second? There has been a theoretical concern about using bispecifics before CAR T-cell therapy, at least in aggressive lymphomas, because you may be inducing some T-cell exhaustion, which can affect the quality of the T-cells that you collect for CAR T-cell therapy. But in follicular lymphoma, it becomes much less important because, as Dr. Ansel showed, these agents often have fixed dosing and lead to years-long remission. So by the time someone relapses and would need CAR T-cell therapy, the bispecific is long gone and out of the patient's system. The way I think about it in my practice is for very aggressive follicular lymphomas, a patient with POD24 who's quickly gone through their first two lines of therapy, I would reach for CAR T-cell therapy before bispecifics because CD19 CAR T-cell therapy does lead to the longest progression-free survival across the different risk variables for follicular lymphoma, but it does so at an added risk of cytokine release syndrome and neurologic toxicity. And then would favor a bispecific antibody for a patient who likes the idea of having a therapy that's closer to home, who likes the idea of a therapy with a more favorable toxicity profile, and who doesn't mind having a treatment that may last for several months' duration. So, Dr. Ansel, can you fill us in on what some of the most exciting earlier lines of therapy studies are that we're seeing? If we think about our practices, many folks would use the lenalidomide rituximab regimen as kind of a second or earlier line of therapy. And now there are multiple trials that are actually exploring bispecific antibodies in combination with that combination and often compared in a randomized fashion to lenalidomide rituximab. So mosinutuzumab plus lenalidomide or odronextumab plus lenalidomide or epcaritumab plus the combination have all been compared or are being compared in clinical trials to lenalidomide and rituximab. So those are, I think, trials we should watch for to see whether we can improve the outcomes even further. There's now data being generated right in front line. And obviously, we need to watch the space with great interest and especially long-term side effects and toxicities. But certainly, the efficacy and benefit to patients is quite profound. So we're going to be looking at these right in front line combinations and sometimes as single agents. So mosinutuzumab on its own is being tested, odronextumab with chemotherapy, epcaritumab, rituximab combinations, and then glofidumab with abinutuzumab. All of these are currently in frontline treatments for patients. What are the take-home messages that folks should take from this program? I think it's a really exciting time for follicular lymphoma, where we have really changed the treatment landscape for multiply relapse disease with these bispecific antibodies and with CAR T-cell therapies. The advantages of bispecifics, of course, are that they're very highly effective with a really manageable safety profile. The high activity with low toxicity in the multiply relapse setting is really fueling some of these frontline and second-line studies that I think are going to change how we manage our patients. I think there's still the need for a coordinated effort, multidisciplinary approaches, and good working with community and with other kind of providers that are a part of the care team. 
But all told, I think we're going to see this particular treatment with bispecific antibodies impacting virtually every line of therapy in follicular lymphoma. We'd like to thank people for participating in this program. And Dr. Jacobson, as always, you do a wonderful job. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Ansel. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.